Okay, let's open to 1 John chapter 2, the latter part. Um, debated whether or not to spend a whole day talking about what we just talked about, but in, in all honesty, just kind of have to ask what Zach and Becky would want. And Zach and Becky, they want to be here and worship very, very badly, and they know now is not the time to do that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to worship, and we're going to rally around Scripture, and we're going to continue to push through. So we're in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. We'll read into chapter 3, and then we'll pause, and then we'll cover a few more verses. Um, so if you have your Bibles, open those. If not, they will be on the screen. Um, and we'll recap a little bit of that. And I'll, and I'll just go ahead and tell you today, too, like given the scope of this week, and this is not me asking for sympathy, but, but I have fewer notes on my paper today than I've probably had in the past year and a half. It's just been that week, and so no telling what's, what's going to come out. So we'll see. If I say elephant again after this, you, you're free just to stand up and get coffee because it's probably completely derailed, and uh, I won't say anything else sensical after that. So chapter 2, verse 28 through 3, 3 says, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure." So we've got kind of a, a transition from what we looked at last week in which John was kind of given the reason or the purpose for this letter. Uh, he's writing and saying that there will be people that are against Jesus or antichrists in the lowercase a sense, those that do not affirm him as the Son of God, do not affirm him as deity, uh, do not affirm him as the true Messiah. All of those things, they have come in and they're trying to pull many of you out and he's warning against them. And he's letting them know, like, uh, it, is, it is impossible for someone to claim God without claiming Christ. If there is no Christ, there, there is no relationship with God. And we kind of use that as cautionary for us, like, be careful whom we follow. Because many people will claim God has done this, God has done that, yet they're not claiming Jesus as the way to that God. And if they're not claiming Jesus as the way to that God, then they cannot know the Father. Exact words from John. And as a matter of fact, we reach back to Jesus. He made similar claims of saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so John was cautioning them. He's like, be on guard. Look out for these people. And from a pastoral perspective, I said, look, my job to protect you, if someone comes to you and they're offering some new sparkly idea about Jesus, chances are it's not true. They're trying to lead you away and you have full permission to turn and walk. And that's okay. Protectionary. Um, and then he's kind of transitioning now because he was talking about we're in those last days or the final hour, and we said from the writers of the New Testament, their perspective, they were, because we have the creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Restoration is that time that Jesus comes back and he takes care of all of these things, makes everything right, brings it back to the place in which sin does not corrupt, death does not take, all of those things. But until that time, we're living in this, this time of redemption in which God is redeeming mankind and creation through the life, the birth, the death, the resurrection direction in the words of Jesus, if we just believe. And so we're in those end times. And so 
Now he's giving them a little more information starting in verse 28. He says, and now little children abide in him or live in him, walk in him, dwell in him, so that when he appears, because they're expecting it to happen any day now, they had no idea that 2,000 some odd years later we would still be working through this text and still be in those end times, still be expecting him to return at any moment. But he says, look, uh, little children, I want you to know, like live in him, walk in him, thrive in him, so that when he appears, because he's going to, you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Like live in him through him to such a degree that when he appears, we're not embarrassed. We're not embarrassed. It would be easy to take this and apply a legalistic mindset to, oh, you're telling me I need to live a certain way? Well, here's the reality. Yes, we should be living in a certain way. I mean, if we're reading the book of 1 John, like he's telling us a ton of if-then statements, conditional ideas, uh, if we do this or know this, then this is how we should look kind of a thing, Uh, ultimately being yoked to God through Jesus. And in this place, he's like, look, if we are abiding in him, living in him, our life is tied up in his, then our life should look a certain way. And when he returns, if we've been fully invested in his life for my life, when he comes back, we won't be embarrassed. We won't be ashamed. We'll have confidence that we can approach Christ knowing that his righteousness has been imparted to me. That is what I've been living through, and I can look at him with confidence. And so he's just telling them, like everything that you heard of the people that were trying to entice you and pull you away, number one, it was lies. There's no truth in it. Jesus is returning, and when he returns, like it would be wise, it would be good, it would be loving if we were living in such a way that when he comes back, we feel free just to walk up. Now, granted, we'll fall down, but we'll walk up first. He said you can have that confidence. And he says, after that, he says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Another indicator statement from John like we've seen many times. Chapter 3. And then he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He just takes a moment to remind them, like, this is not just another religious system that you probably have tried to live and failed. He was like, no, as a result of this Jesus and what he's done, we're not just, we're not just partakers in a system. No, we're children of God. And that was instituted by the love of God. Like, he loved us so much that he didn't just want to love us into a system, love us into a temple. He wanted to love us into a life so that we could cry out, Abba, Father. That we could call him like holy daddy, kind of an idea with reverence attached. He's like, this is the God that we're talking about. The one that we're supposed to abide in. The one that when he comes back, we can approach with confidence. He says, look, he loves you so much, he's made you his kid. This is the life we abide in. He said, we're called children of God. That is who we are. And then he gives them another little explanation. He says, but the reason the world does not know us is it didn't know him. And he's like, yeah. Like, you're going to walk around as a stranger and alien in this world that is dominated by a force other than God, because when Jesus was here, he was seen in the same way. So just understand. He said, beloved, we are. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. He's like, look, he is coming back. 
He's coming back. I've already told you we need to have confidence when he does. If we abide in him, uh, when he comes back, we will see what that glorification looks like, that last stage, the place that we are waiting for, for him to come back and make all things new. And when we see him, we will know exactly what we will be like because we'll be like him. And that's mind-boggling. Like, I think we struggle to wrap our minds around that, and that's completely okay. I don't think it's something that's entirely knowable and understandable, but it's something that we should have enough familiarity with that when it occurs, a lot like a ton of prophecy that we see in Revelation, uh, that when it occurs, we're like, oh, that's it. That's what you meant. He says, we will be like him. And then he tags one more line of kind of direction for them, and he says, and everyone who thus hopes, or everyone who hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. He says, if we're awaiting the return of Jesus so that we can look to him and know what we will be like for the rest of eternity with him when glorification is made known, made real, made felt, he said, if that's what we're hoping for, then we actually need to be actively trying to live a life that looks like his. That's the abide in him. That's how he wraps that up. If we abide in him, living, tied up in his life, uh, the ways in which he's pure, we should be working towards those things. I had a, a great friend, and I've quoted him a lot. He said, I will never be sinless, but I should strive to sin less and less. Like, that should be a goal that is placed in me, supplied and empowered by the Holy Spirit that dwells in me, that if I want to live in Christ and await his return, then I should seek to sin less and less and less. Purification in that sense. And he's making a reference to the things that we do that corrupt us, that make us impure, and it's sin, and that's going to lead us into the rest of this text. So verses 4 through 10. He says, everyone, let me go ahead and let me give you a warning real quick. If we read this by itself, like we talked about last week and most weeks before, like context is everything, okay? Context is everything. Like when you read scripture, you should probably say that before you read it. Like, context is everything. If you read a single verse by itself, you can make it say whatever you want. If you read three verses by themselves without knowing what came before and came after, you can make it say whatever you want. And sometimes if you just read just a snippet or a whole chapter, you can make it say whatever you want. But if we're looking at big picture, the big puzzle that is the story of God, the redemptive story of God, and we understand that we've been given pieces and we're trying to put them in the right place on the giant puzzle board, and we step back and we view it all and allow that to help us interpret difficult passages, then we're understanding that context is everything. And so we start with the big context, God's redemptive story, and then we break it down into the period of time in which it's being written, by whom is writing it, to whom it's being written, and then uh, we look a little bit closer to like very specific circumstances into which something's being written, what's the occasion for it being written, all of those things, and then we look at the immediate surroundings to understand like true context. This particular text, if we take this text out of the context of 1 John and we read it, all of us are going to walk out of here and be like, well, there is zero hope for me. There's no hope for me. If we read it by itself, it can be incredibly confusing and completely demoralizing. And it's going to make us throw up our hands and be like, well, why should I even try? So context is everything. We'll point back to some context that came before and why we say that. But here, starting in verse 4, is why it gets crazy. Everyone, that's an all-inclusive word. We have a few of those in Scripture. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Your text may say, no one who abides in him sins. 
No one who keeps on sinning or no one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, which is a jump into next week's text, which Andrew Hendricks will be taking. Perfect timing. Thank you for that, Andrew. Uh, Be sure to come back. So if we read this text by itself, can anyone shake their head this way? If you read that by itself, you'd be like, I am a little confused. I am a little confused. Phrases like, um, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Okay? That phrase. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Um, Or, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Or, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and cannot keep on sinning, because he's been born of God. Those could be confusing statements. Because on on the surface is what it makes it sound like is like, if you still sin, then you don't know God, right? I mean, that's what it sounds like, especially depending on some translations. Like there's some translations out there that that don't say make a practice, don't say keep on. They just say sin. You read that and you're like, well, there's zero hope for me because I sinned this morning when the coffee burned my tongue. Um, Or I sinned last night when I was trying to get my kids to bed and they weren't listening too good. Their fault, not mine, but my fault. We read it and we're like, well, there's no hope for me. Context. Context. If we go back to 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, I'll give you time to flip there. It'll be on the screen as well. It's just one page back, so you should be there now. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1, just right very next line. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, in John's words... This text is not saying, if you sin, you don't know God. It's not what it's saying. On the contrary, it's not saying that you can just go out and sin however you want either. It's not saying either one of those things. So what what exactly is it saying? First of all, the context of what's occurring, the circumstances, there are people that are trying to pull them away from the truth of Jesus. Okay, and a, and a couple of those positions are, like we talked about, the docetism and, and some Gnosticism, some ideas there that they all kind of flow from the same place. One group is saying, look, Jesus was spirit, okay, um, just spirit, and because he was just spirit and not really flesh, it only looked like he was, um, what we do in the flesh doesn't matter. So your sin, what you've been told is sin, the things that you do in the body, they're no big deal. They're no big deal. So don't even, don't even worry about those. As long as the spirit part of you is good, doesn't matter about the flesh part of you. The problem is, that's a lie. 
If we read the rest of Scripture, the problem is we see that that's a lie. We see that, you know, the the chief of pointing out that that's a lie is that Jesus came to die on behalf of my sins. If my sins were not a big deal, he would not have put on flesh. He would not have left the place where he was saying to, holy, 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 all day long. If days existed in eternity and they don't, he wouldn't have left that, come here, uh, come to be born of a virgin, to be born into a pile of hay, to stoop for 30 some odd years to avoid sin but be tempted by by every possible sin, then to hang on a cross bearing the weight of my sin and all humanity's sin until he suffocated and died. Like that wouldn't have happened if sin doesn't matter. Because sin does matter. And so there's that truth. But John says, if any of you say that you haven't sinned, you're a liar because you have. Romans tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe that's pre-grace. No, 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 that's fine, pre-grace. But John, 1 John, he's writing it to these churches. Starting in Ephesus, going around to another six. And these are believers. These are people that are professing Christ followers. He's writing to the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. People that are yoked to God through Jesus himself, indwelled by the very Holy Spirit. And he's telling them, uh, if you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar. If you say you haven't sinned, you make him a liar. But if you do sin, we have an advocate that is Jesus. Not just once, but always. So sin is important. Sin is wrong, but sin is real. So, so what exactly is he saying? So if it's not saying that sin doesn't matter, it's not saying that, then what is he saying? I think the way that we must understand this, and this is the super short version, because that's what I got in me today. The phrases that appear with with honest, good translation, it says, no one, starting in verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. No one born of God, verse 9, makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Here's what we need to know. This, what it's referring to, is is what I'm going to call unchecked sin. Unchecked sin. Perpetual sin. Perpetual sin in which um, we don't notice it. It doesn't bother us. We're not trying to do anything to correct it. There is no confession. There is no repentance. There's just rampant sin. And in that case, if that type of sin exists most likely the Holy Spirit is not in us as a seal of our salvation because there is no salvation there. So yes, those people in which sin is not noticed, sin is not recognized, sin is not dealt with because it is not perceived, those people are most likely apart from God's love. I say most likely because I do believe in the life of a believer we can be led so far away from God that there will be times in which uh, we are living for sin and not living for Jesus. Even though we have been bought by a price, uh, we have willfully ignored the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But I would say clear majority of the time, this unchecked sin is the sin that exists in the life of a non-believer who is unable to pursue righteousness because God's not in him who is unable to pursue repentance because he doesn't think he needs it or she doesn't think she needs it, if I'm being fair. Unchecked sin. And so again, like we've talked about, like First John writes in these indicators, like if A, then B, or if A, then not B, this kind of thing. This is another one of those like huge indicators, 
in this moment. And this text is not meant to, like, I'll be honest, like, most, I don't think most of Scripture is written to make you doubt your relationship with God. And that's rarely, if ever, my intent. Like, I would rather assure you of who you know than, than make you doubt decisions that you've claimed that you've previously made. But in reading this, like, it does bring up some questions. Like, it does make us ask some questions. I do want to reread the later, latter half of this before we get into those questions. Starting in verse 9 to the end, it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. A couple of things here we need to understand. This life that we've been invited into by the grace of Jesus, um, our life that has been bought and paid for in full, past sins, current sins, future sins, that life, that life is no longer the same as the life we previously lived. Previously lived. The seed that abides in me now is not the seed of the world. It's the seed of Jesus. And as a result of the seed of Jesus being in me and growing in me, me partnering in my sanctification, but God doing the work, my life cannot be the same as it once was. It cannot be marked by my inability to choose good. It cannot be marked by my inability to pursue righteousness. Now, as a result of the seed being righteously, sovereignly, and perfectly placed in me, there's a couple things that I'm capable of doing that I wasn't capable of doing before. Number one, I actually can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, avoid sin. I can make a choice to do something or not do something. Previously, I was incapable. And you say, well, that's, that's not fair. No, what's not fair is that we're given the choice after salvation. What's fair is we would have just been taken away from God and the possibility of hope. That would be fair. But luckily for us, God doesn't function in fair. God functions in grace. Previously, I was unable to choose whether or not to avoid sin. But now, as a result of the seed that has been placed in me, that seed that is Christ via the Holy Spirit, I can actually choose to avoid sin. Do I choose to, to avoid sin? Not all the time. There are days in which I sin. And First John, we already see the reference to that. If you sin, confess. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin, cleanse you of all unrighteousness, not to give you salvation again, but because you already have it and the relationship has been marred and bruised by sin and we need those mars and those bruises to be removed. I was incapable of choosing to sin or not. Now I'm capable. The other thing that I've been made capable to do, and this passage also alludes to, because he is righteous, I can pursue righteousness now. Righteousness just comes in the form of, of good works. That's righteousness, right e us, the things that we do that are right. We've seen Jesus on display. His entire life was marked by righteousness, not just his avoidance of sin, but him choosing good works repeatedly when there were other options. But because he was fully God, fully man, he was fully capable of choosing the best and avoiding the worst. And the worst was there. I mean, before his earthly ministry even started, he was taken up on a mountain and Satan said, you see all this? It's mine. And to a degree, Satan was right. For a while, given dominion, given reign. And he said, if you just, if you just worship me, I'll give it all to you. I'll be honest, I've never been taken on the top of a mountain and been offered everything. Not once. And I can assure you it will never happen. 
But Jesus said no. And there were several others. You should, you should go and read that. It's, it's bizarre. It's amazing. It's beautiful. But Jesus pursued righteousness now as a result of the seed that has been placed in me, him replicating himself, himself in me. Now I can also pursue righteousness. I can pursue good works. In this particular text, John is pointing to the people. He's like, look, I just need to give you some pretty clear indicators. If you're living a life that is marked by sin and it's unchecked, um, you have no reason to avoid it, you have no reason to call it sin, then you, you don't know God. You don't know God. And so I, I don't know who you are today sitting here. But if you're sitting here, and we'll, we'll talk about it just as an application in just a minute, like if you're sitting here and say, I, I don't have sin, I've never sinned, I don't even know what that is. I'd love to have a conversation with you this week, maybe on Wednesday. I won't be here tomorrow on Tuesday, but Wednesday, I'm, I'm back. Two blocks away, we'll meet you. I'll make the coffee. It's dark roast right now, so deal with that. But there's cow juice in the fridge, and it tames even the darkest coffees. I'd love to have a chat. Or, I don't really do anything good. I have no desire to do good. That's equally a problem. That's equally a problem. In the life of a believer, there should be two things that rest simultaneously. One, the active, voluntary avoidance in dealing with sin. The active, voluntary avoidance and willful dealing with sin, but then the pursuit of righteousness. And these aren't seasonal, by the way. These are a byproduct of who we are. You don't get to say from January to March, I'm going to avoid sin, and from April to May, I'm going to pursue righteousness. It doesn't work like that. These aren't compartmentalized things. These are identity things. These are parts of who we are as a result of the seed that's been placed in me, in you, if you just believe. So here are the questions. And we'll, we'll work through these in community group a little bit. And like I said, this is the most sparse notes that I've, I've maybe ever had in the life of uh, teaching here at Origins. The first is this. And again, not aiming to make you doubt your salvation, but, but I'm just pointing out the same things that John did. Number one, does my sin bother me? Does my sin bother me? I'll repeat it one more time just to add to the awkward silence. Does my sin bother me? Do you, do you feel convicted by something in you whose voice you may not understand, but you can definitely feel after you've sinned? It's called conviction, and that voice is the Holy Spirit telling you that this is not how you should then live? Do you feel conviction for sin? Have you ever felt embarrassed by your sin? Have you felt embarrassed by your sin to the point that you, you didn't feel like you could pray the next day? And then the next day? And then the next day? And then the next day? Or... Is it all hardly noticeable? My best day, my worst day, mm, they're all about the same. If your sin bothers you, good. Okay, good. 
Our sin should bother us. Our sin should feel like conviction, like I don't know how it feels for you, but for me, it's like that pit in your stomach of just like, I think I want to throw up. I know I've got to have a conversation that I don't want to have. Um, it's not going to be fun, but either I get it out or I'm going to be miserable. Like for me, at, at, at my age, it could be my gallbladder, but I'm, most of the time I'm pretty sure that it's the Holy Spirit. Because um, it wasn't after eating spicy food, it's after me doing something I should not have, missing the marks in. Holy Spirit. Now, if I just had a level 10 at Thai restaurant on Augusta, I need to examine my life. Um, but most of the time, that's what conviction feels like for me. An uneasiness. A lack of the things that Christ has said that he would give, like peace. And then we're already given the prescription. In chapter 1, if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin, cleanse you of all unrighteousness. When that conviction comes post-sin, it, this is, man, simple, childlike prayer. Like, if our kid breaks a window, our kids haven't broken a window yet, but if they do, hopefully, within a day, they would come to us and they, they would say, uh, Dad, I threw a transformer through the window. It was a great battle. He lost, but I broke a window. That would be him confessing. When, when sin comes in, when we notice it, when there's conviction there, however it feels to you, we just go to God humbly, we go to God quickly, and we confess, God, I did this, and I know it's not what you want. I don't want to do it anymore. Would you forgive me? Take that away. Confession. And then it's gone. It's gone. Earthly consequences may still exist, but heavenly consequences, they're, they're gone. Scripture says as far as the east is from the west, which is as far as possible. Don't even see each other anymore. If your sin's hardly noticeable, you need to ask why. And you need to ask why with someone in front of you that can answer that. I would say with an open Bible and with someone who professes Jesus as their Lord, and it's noticeable. Ask them why your sin does not bother you. And just let us talk. Let us talk. The second question is this. Are you partnering with God actively for His good works? Are you partnering with God actively for His good works? And please don't answer how much you serve on Sunday. We're grateful for everyone that serves on Sunday. That's amazing. Like Sundays are fun. This is not who we are. It's something that we get to do regardless of the space, regardless of the time, regardless of the chairs and the HVAC. It's something that we get to do and it's glorious and it's fun. And we love people that volunteer and serve on Sunday but that is not nearly the extent of what good works are. Not even close. Like, it can be, because they are good, and they are work, especially when it's 14 degrees outside. Thank you for everybody that came out this morning, with or without gloves. We appreciate it. Titus 3.8, interesting short little book. Um, Titus 3.8 says, This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You say, well, that's good, but it still doesn't tell me what it is. Kicking down just a little bit further to verse 14. Um, let me read verse 13 first. It says, do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. 
and not to be unfruitful. I think in this life that we live now, most of the time, our good works are going to be us helping one another first and then helping all the others next. Those are our good works. Because what God has done through this thing called the the church, the body of Christ, is He has given us access to Him, but He's also given us one another. And, And the way that those good works are so often on display is how we take care of, how we provide for, how we intercede for, how we do all of these things for the one another's. Galatians 6 says, find every opportunity to do good, especially those within the household of God. We do. We take care of the household of God. Those are good works. But it extends beyond that. It extends beyond that to your neighbor who may not profess Jesus, um, who, who may have lost a loved one, who may, their car may be dead. You know, those types of things. These are good works. There's no way around that. Like, it's talking about Zenos and Apollos, and he's pointing to them, making sure that they lack nothing. They were one another's, but he's saying these are good works. You took care of all their needs. Like, Origins does an amazing job at these good works. Like, mill trains, you're the best at it. Like, honestly, the best I've ever seen. Like from, you know, personal experience, a couple of years ago, um, we didn't have to make a meal for about three months, and it was pretty wild. And that's good, because I couldn't have made a meal. It would have been really bad. Um, You took care of us. The way that you're taking care of Zach and Becky Larrabee right now, those are good works. But they extend beyond that. We almost look at the, the example of Christ while Christ was here, like his goal was restoration, but very often he did it one individual at a time. He did what he could do as he could do it until he couldn't. To quote a very cheesy movie, oh man, such a cheesy movie. Um, So cheesy, I can't even remember the name, but it was Ashton Kutcher and he was a rescue swimmer with the Coast Guard. What, the Guardian? Yeah, Top Gun 2, before Top Gun 2 was actually made. Same storyline, except there was water and, and not as many flying scenes. But at one point, he's talking to Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner's the old salty rescue swimmer. I make movie references that show how old I am, but Kevin Costner was this old rescue swimmer, and Ashton Kutcher, young, young, you know, young gun, fish, swam really good and really fast. And at one point, he was just asking him, like, like, how do you know? He's like, how do you know what? How do you know which ones to save? And Kevin Costner, the old guy, who you knew was going to die, I hope I didn't give away the ending, but he does. <laughs> he said, you swim as fast and as long and as hard as you possibly can until you can't. And he said, that's how you know. That's how you know. For us in this life, we love people, we take care of people, we cover every possible need that we can until we can't, in the name of Jesus, so that people will know that we love them, but God loves them more. Those are good works. Be it if we're serving at our schools, be it if we're serving at PMAC, be it if we're serving it at the rescue mission or shepherd's gate, be it we're serving the dude on the street who we don't know, whatever it may be, if God is directing you to do it, we do it and we do it until we can't. And those are good works. And in Titus, Paul is reminding them, remind them, remind them, devote themselves to this. Not make it an obligation, not make it a box to check, but devote ourselves to it. And then we flip over to 1 John And it says this reveals the very fact that that seed that he placed in us is alive, well, thriving, and has given us a new identity. Because this is who we are now. We are people that avoid sin, 
confess it when it happens, trust Jesus as our advocate, and we're people that because Jesus did good works first and showed us what they look like, we pursue those, we devote our lives to that, and we let God do the rest. I love to boil down the Christian life to its simplest terms. And here, man, fight sin, do good. Because God did both already for us. Fight sin, do good, because God did both for us already. It doesn't get much simpler. It's not to say that it's easy. Because someday sin won't eat your breakfast. And those are the days that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you kick it in the teeth and tell it to get out. Some days that's easier said than done. So this week, just as a reminder, like, does your sin bother you? And are you partnering with God to do good works? Is that happening? If either of those things are a strange answer for you, let's chat. Let's talk. Anytime. Um, like I said, I'm not available Monday, Tuesday, but I know Neil and Andrew, um, our wives, Abby's here. Life is a bit busy right now, but that's okay. It's not too busy. Your community group leaders, they'll be more than happy to meet you at a convenient time. Uh, you shoot us an email and say, hey, when can this happen? We'll make it happen. We'd love just to have a conversation if you struggle to answer either one of those questions. Let me pray, and then we're going to have some announcements. God, we thank you. We thank you that you do more than we deserve. We thank you that you fix what is broken because we can't. Um, we thank you that you call us into a life that we are completely and utterly incapable of living without you. But God, we thank you that you make it simple. Uh, that you did. You came uh, in body, in person, in full spirit of God uh, to die on our behalf because our best days couldn't fix our weakest moments. But your best life could. Thank you for the goodness of Jesus. God, as a people that want to, to not just know you and claim you, but live in you, abide in you, Father, I pray that you would make our sin real to us, as real as it is to you. And you would move in us to fix, to go after, to seek you, to restore. Through confession, through repentance, and through the advocacy that rests in Christ alone. And God, these good works that you created beforehand the good works that you made beforehand and you have birthed us into a plan so that we may live them out. God, I pray that we would find every opportunity to devote ourselves to those for your glory, your good, and for those who do know you and those who don't. Because, Father, I believe like if we live that day by day, this city will be changed. It's not that we'll just need more chairs. That, that's great, but this city will be changed. Your name will be great. Your glory will spread, and that's what we want, God. Make us want that more. And God, even in this week, next week, and the weeks to come, as we have great opportunities to, to do good works in the way of interceding on behalf of a family that we love dearly, of taking them food so that they don't have to cook. Um, when the time is right, maybe taking Cooper for a few hours so they don't have to watch him. Maybe just doing something normal with them. Whatever that may be, God, as you lead and as the time permits, Father, I pray that we would just we would pursue that because we love you, you love them, and we get to love them too. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.